a Podcast One production. Global meditation teacher Tom Cronin insists on holding a deeper appreciation for how our inner worlds influence our outer worlds. He explores the art of stillness and shares what he and others are learning about the space between thoughts and how our brains take care of our bodies. Tom defines quiet as presence, not an absence of sound, but an absence of noise. What follows is a conversation about battling your inner demons, reprogramming the subconscious mind, and how in stillness, the true presence of our nature is revealed. What meditation does, it allows us to transcend the limited framework of our conditioned mind, the program mind, and access the field of mind, which is the vast array of infinite creative possibility. I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life, and hopefully yours too. Tom Cronin is the producer of the highly acclaimed film The Portal. He has helped thousands of people to overcome profound personal issues through his meditation and spiritual teachings. In this episode, you will learn how to master your world through stillness and calm. Tom, some of us say that for us to wake up, we need a wake-up call, and you got that wake-up call. You got a big wake-up call. Take us through your life from the beginning when you were working as a money broker to where you are now and how you transformed? Um, You know, I started work in finance by default as a 19-year-old. I'd just finished backpacking around the world after taking a year off school, was about to do a degree in in journalism at university. And I just applied for a bunch of jobs in the paper, just random jobs, literally. And one of them, which I ended up landing, was on this massive, huge trading room floor, just when global markets were really starting to boom. It was late 80s. And, you know, that was when we had Wall Street, Gordon Gecko, Bud Fox, Greed is Good. We had Jordan Belfort starting his career mm. as the Wolf of Wall Street. And we had Bonfire of the Vanities, which was Master of the Universe. Um, can't remember, Sherman McCoy, bond broker extraordinaire. So, you know, it was a really fast time in markets. And I managed to land myself into that sort of energy into that space. And it was exciting. It was dynamic. You know, I loved it as a 19-year-old. You know, before long, I was given a six-figure salary, a corporate Amex card to go out and take bankers and traders to expensive restaurants and wine bars and nightclubs. And I was given a fast sports car as a company car. So, it was amazing. But the lifestyle that I slipped into, uh, partly, which was a finance lifestyle, which was doing a lot of drugs late nights. And then, There was another lifestyle that I also slipped into as well as that, which was back when the rave culture was really exploding in Australia, late 80s, early 90s. And, uh, you know, weekends for me were being in massive warehouse parties doing ecstasy and drugs till dawn and then going to recovery parties all day Sunday. So if you can imagine all day on a massive trading room floor pumping adrenaline through your veins all night in wine bars, restaurants, nightclubs during the week doing, you know, lines of coke and then all weekend doing ecstasy and raves, you know, over time the exacerbation of that lifestyle on your nervous system starts to play out, starts to show up with these big bold red lights on the dashboard saying this is not sustainable. And so for me, that was, you know, extreme anxiety. So how old were you then? You know, it was kind of starting around sort of 20. I started the career at 19 and Mm. then 
took a, a probably a year before I fell into that sort of lifestyle, but some 20s, you know, all through my 20s, really, uh, it just exacerbated. You know, at first you don't notice any of the symptoms, you're just having a hell of a good time. Mm. And you go from 20 to 21 and 22, and then slowly what happens is these symptoms start to show up. And Deepak Chopra says that the uh, symptoms that we actually get where we're aware of something being wrong is the fifth and final stage of an imbalance being in the system. And that can take quite a few years before we actually even find that mm-hmm. symptom appearing. So for me, the symptoms didn't start appearing till sort of like in my sort of mid-20s and then that sort of really exacerbated to my late 20s when I had literally a full-blown nervous breakdown where my, my system just simply collapsed in on itself and couldn't handle that load that I was putting it through. And so... When you were in that state, what did you say to yourself? How did you change? You know, we can change by choice or we can change through choicelessness. Mm. And for me, it ended up being choicelessness where we get to a fork in the road and there's only really one or two options that's either breakdown or breakthrough. Mm. And for me, um, I was going to the path of really questioning whether I could even go on with the journey. And I was sent to psychiatrists, doctors, psychologists, put on pharmaceutical drugs. But I was really slipping into quite a dark place where I was really questioning whether I even wanted to continue on that journey. And so at that point, whether it was divine intervention or not, but I'd come across uh, a documentary. I'd experienced agoraphobia. So I was at home. I couldn't go to work, had to take time off work. And I'm just sitting at home watching a documentary about a property developer. And, mm. and he was talking about meditation and how he used it to help him be successful. And this was way before meditation was mainstream. There was no apps. It was not in the mainstream world at all. I didn't know anyone that meditated in my life. And it was like a light bulb moment where I cut this incredible sense of anticipation and excitement about what might be possible, that this state of peace might be possible because that that guy was meditating in a suit and a chair, not lotus and not in robes. And so it really opened up a new idea for me and that's when I started to explore meditation and mindfulness. And looking back on that now, knowing everything that you do, would you say that that was obviously a divine moment? There's definitely a fork in the road, a turning point mm. where the, the breakthrough started. It was a re- really quite a definitive moment and it happened very quickly where when I started to learn to meditate and experience that state of transcendence and realise that everything I was looking for in the drugs, that losing control, that heightened levels of joy and ecstasy and bliss was actually something I was yearning through my own spiritual connection Mm. and what was found in those moments of complete silence and solitude in the state of meditation was like, oh, that's what it is that I was looking for. How did you know what meditation to choose? It's a really good question. And, you know, back then we didn't have Google to start searching meditation. We didn't have YouTube. We didn't have Headspace or Enter the Portal app. So um, what I did was I picked up the yellow pages and all the young listeners wouldn't have a clue what I'm talking about here. It's a big fat book that had a directory and I looked up for M for meditation and I still distinctly recall the... Uh, the visual of hitting M for meditation and then seeing different centers. And there was a f- uh, one particular one in bold red and they could pay a premium in the yellow pages to get your center in red. And this one was in red and it was uh, transcendental meditation. And this word transcendental, because the guy that was being interviewed in the um, in the documentary used that word as well, transcendental. And I kind of, you know, with the drugs, I really wanted to go somewhere else. Yeah. And particularly ecstasy. I love that it took me to somewhere else than where I was. And 
this idea of transcending really intrigued and excited me because it kind of took me into that sort of idea of going somewhere else. And so when I went to an intro talk um, and I researched a lot of different techniques, I literally rang up all the different centers in that phone book and went along to different Mm. nights and there was chakra clearing and Tibetan bowls and trying to focus the mind and all sorts of different meditations. And they're all beautiful, but that that just wasn't cutting it for me. And then I went to this intro talk about this transcendental meditation and there was this powerful science behind it. And I loved the philosophy and I loved the, yeah, the scientific research that was supporting it. And so I started with that technique and it was phenomenal how quickly that changed. And at that stage, did you have any like friends or family that were doing that kind of stuff? Or you're literally going to these places by yourself, just wanting to know more about it. Yeah, I didn't know one person in this space at all. You know, I was worked on a trading room floor of 150 guys yelling and screaming. Um, my mates were all just going to the rave cultures and my family, I grew up on a farm in the outer western suburbs yeah. of Sydney. So it was completely alien to the world that I'd been in. So you found transcendental meditation and then how did you start your practice from there? You know, what, what happens is you, you go to an intro talk and the teacher talks about what you're going to do, how it works, the science behind it. And uh, for me, it was just a no-brainer. I was all in on that. And I did the course. And the first week is really interesting. You know, when you do the, the course, you know, it's over four consecutive nights or days or sessions and um, you learn how to meditate using the sound. There's a lot of science in the, in the course, which is really beneficial. And that week of learning to meditate was actually quite uncomfortable. There was, you know, it's not like an immediate just Zen master type experience, you Mm. know, it brings up a lot of stresses and I had a lot of stress in my system. And what meditation does is it helps rebalance and it helps clear out the anomalies. And um, the biggest thing that I really noticed was my ability to fall asleep. Uh, Literally that first week was like night and day, you know, between the insomnia that I had prior to meditating and the ability to fall asleep. That was, and generally that's what I see with my students is one of the main things that we see people being able to do is start sleeping because the cortisol pump gets turned off as soon as we start meditating. And I've taught people in corporate environments, 400 people in a massive auditorium, and half of that auditorium will fall asleep within three minutes Mm. when I get them to meditate. And so how did you then feel after starting that meditation? Like what were the changes that you initially saw? It was quite quick. Uh, I, I went back to work only within weeks of starting that and I started to notice... And how long were you doing? Like what was your to, routine? Two meditations a day, once in the morning, once in the afternoon for 20 minutes. And I was quite disciplined with that. That was kind of the, the recommended guideline and I'm sort of guy when I get told to do something, I just do it. Mm-hmm. And so for me, that was a no-brainer. And so I embraced that every day. And I noticed, I guess, a few things. It's not so much what new things you get, it's it's what things are being removed from your life. So I stopped feeling this hyper-stimulated jittery feeling in my body. I stopped feeling this heaviness and this lethargy and I stopped feeling fatigue. Um, You know, I stopped feeling hypersensitive to people's judgment. I stopped feeling, um, you know, overwhelmed. So uh, what happens is a lot of the anomalies get removed and what prevails is just a nice gentleness, a calmness. So it was quite quick what I started noticing. You know, it's a funny thing. I think with anything, when you start seeing feedback of some sort, you're like, okay, I, I want to continue with this. I know for me, when I started on my meditation journey, I had never done meditation before and I started doing it when I was, you know, in a role that was very hectic and busy. 
and I was doing 15 minutes here and there and the Buddhists talk about the monkey mind, which is, you know, the active mind where the, the thoughts are going at 100 miles an hour. And I remember actually thinking... I didn't, when I started watching my thoughts, I didn't even realize how fast your thoughts could actually move. I wouldn't even remember one thought to the next. Like, what was I thinking that? And the weird things that come up that you don't even realize that you're thinking. But it was after being so disciplined and then getting into this everyday practice of doing the meditation where I started noticing that my life was changing in the most unbelievable ways. And I suppose similar to you, that's what then, you know, eggs you on to start doing it every day and be disciplined because you know it's actually working. Yeah, you know, I think um, people often use the word discipline and they used to say to me, I was so disciplined with my practice. And if you think about what discipline is, it it means doing something you don't necessarily want to do, but doing it because you think you should. Uh, It's like the discipline of going to soccer training or the discipline of doing your homework. But for me, it actually, because the levels of uh, and the biochemicals of serotonin and oxytocin that get produced and increased when we meditate, which was literally what the MDMA was doing when I was taking ecstasy, Mm. it triggers a massive core dump of oxytocin and serotonin, which are the bliss chemicals. But the same thing was happening on a more regulated and subtle level during my meditation. So it wasn't a discipline because it was actually something that I really look forward to each day. It was something that I kind of valued as a a high priority in my day because of the pleasure that I was experiencing during that meditation. And for me personally, and it's purely subjective, so I respect everyone else's meditation practices. But for me, um, one thing I found with other meditations that I was doing, I did require discipline, particularly the, the concentration meditations. They were not easy, they were not enjoyable, but they were. I knew they were beneficial. What's a concentration meditation? So it's when you're forcing the mind to do something it doesn't want to do, particularly, for instance, a common one will be mm-hmm. focusing on the breath moving through the nostrils. Now, it's not a blissful experience for the mind to do that. It's not charming and it's not enjoyable. The mind really is not entertained by that proposition. And so there's going to be some resistance and you're going to need a lot of force to get that mind to stay on that single point. And when there's force, when there's friction, that's discomfort. And so that's unenjoyable. But with the mantra, what happens is it's an effortless process. There's no trying, there's no concentration. So what we have is a primordial vibration that for the mind is quite a pleasurable experience to repeat it. It's like a baby getting patted on the back. Mm. You know, you could shake the baby while it's trying to sleep and that would be uncomfortable. But if you just pat it really gently, it will actually lull it into a nice, quiet sleep sleep state. And so what were you noticing in your life that was changing after you're doing this work? Um, generally it's quite subtle but generally an elevated sense of peace uh, a sense of freedom from we call it moksha m-o-k-s-h-a freedom from the binding effect of life where circumstances are happening around you and usually it creates this huge buffering effect on our emotional state which is where we have a reaction and what I was noticing more and more was a greater sense of ease about circumstances happening in life without me being pulled into the story and the traction of that, uh, that, that story. And so you obviously had a program running in your subconscious mind that was negative because to get into that state initially, you know, your subconscious is not running with these positive, happy thoughts. To then rewire the subconscious mind obviously takes a lot of effort and you know, it can't just be done through meditation. How did you enable your subconscious mind to then change to be able to live the life that you do now? Yeah, it's a really good point because just sitting in silence and stillness is one thing, but then to re- 
up or to reprogram or to recode or to upgrade the the mental framework, the software of the mind is something that needs to happen as well. Um, you know, a lot of workshops, a lot of courses, a lot of reading, a lot of spiritual texts, um, uh, a lot of lectures. I was just devouring this new level of wisdom mm. and knowledge. You know, like there was no tomorrow. My, you know, got thousands of books at home now that I had churned through and thousands of courses that I'd been through with great spiritual masters along the way that, you know, and really a lot of that wisdom's innate in all of us. It's just that they're reminding you and you're remembering things that you'd forgotten or had been caught up in a mindset that was sort of programmed that was overriding those innate tendencies to think in a particular way. Becoming still obviously allows us to then be able to gain a higher level of consciousness and, you know, as some say, kind of a link to the divine. It's There's this beautiful saying by one of my favourite poets, Rumi, I grow silent, dear soul, you speak. And it is, I know for myself, there have been so many times where I've been in meditation and I've uh, the most profound one for me came in my early years of meditating. I remember just, you know, they call it in spirit, inspiration. I had this thought during meditation which really, it changed the trajectory of my life. And, you know, initially I was just like, oh yeah, that's just kind of a thought that I had. And I then went and did what I had thought about, the inspiration that I'd gotten. And I realised later that no, that was coming because I was connected. You know, how do you feel like that's changed your life? And what things have you learned from being in that silent state? Yeah, it's such a powerful thing to get into that science because they a lot of people think of it as as an emptiness or a, a very undynamic space but it's actually an incredibly dynamic space mm. when you access that field and i love the quote from oprah winfrey that she says only from she does these deeper transcending meditations yeah. she says it's only from that space can you create your best work and your best life and that's because and the analogy I like to use is this. So if you think of a phone has an uh, iOS, say an iPhone has an iOS operating system yeah. and it's got limitations and it needs to be upgraded um, and it has glitches and things in that operating system and that operating system is programmed by an operator, uh, by a programmer, I should say. Um, and that's like the software of our mind. It's like the subconscious mind and the conscious mind is a deeply programmed tendency and pattern of neurological pathways. But if you take that phone and use the analogy of that phone, it also has access to a field of infinite, almost infinite intelligence, which mm. is the web. And the web is all around the phone. The web's not in the phone. The web's all around the phone. And so we have access to that field of wisdom and creative potential and innate potential that's all around us. It's in the field. And everything that's been cognized and created came out of that field. And so what meditation does, and that's why Oprah said that, is because it allows us to transcend the limited framework of our conditioned mind, the program mind, and access the field of mind, which is the vast array of infinite creative possibility. And then we get these cognitions during our meditation. And this is why meditation can be quite a dynamic experience is that we'll get into stillness, but then that stillness will be... Um, Get it'll be filled with impulses of creative intelligence that will come through that we're like, wow, where did that idea come from? A film, a book, a podcast, yeah. you know? And so we start getting these impulses of creative intelligence that start coming through from the field into the new software. Have you found that you've had something that's come through that has changed your life? I mean, daily, you know, daily. I've written seven books in the last seven years. I've produced a feature documentary, uh, run retreats, and all of that was cognized out of the, the field to 
that's a good idea, that's a good idea, that's a good idea. Mm. And then we also lose the barrier um, of why would I do that, which is the self-talk and the self-doubt. So not only do you access this incredible impulse of creative intelligence, so for me it was all of those things that I've created in those many years, um, to uh, also not have the the impediment of self-doubt saying don't do that. It's just like, hell yeah. And so you just go and do it. You know, the power of the mind is a huge thing and meditation helps that in a big way. You change the way you think, you change your life. How have you found that meditation is, has helped you on that path? It's allowed me to realise a greater potential within me. And so by simply getting out of finance and becoming a teacher and running retreats and coaching clients and making films and writing books and getting impulses and getting inspired and realising my potential to have a greater impact on the world and be hopefully a better person and be kinder and more caring. And I think the other thing that really meditation plays a big part in is that when we start transcending the seeming separation between us and the world around us, because that's an individual form, which is an emotional, me- emotional, mental and physiological form that is perceived as me. And when we transcend in meditation, we transcend those three forms or vehicles that are perceived to be me and we access the field of oneness, the field of in science, science called unified fields. Mm. And from there, when we start to normalise and stabilise that in our waking experience in the vehicle and in the three forms, what happens is we start to innately feel a sense of interconnectivity, not just with spirit, our own spirit, but with other people and other things, other forms. And so we start to realise that everything is actually an extension of me and that really changes the way you start to interact in the world. You, By default, um, and, you know, I'm not 100% there, but by default you start becoming much kinder and more caring and mm. more compassionate and more understanding and empathetic about other people and other animals and other plants and other planets and realise that it's not just about me and my own individual form and how can I extract something to make my individual form have a better experience in life. It's like how can we elevate the mass, the whole, because the whole is me. And so we naturally by default, we see this time and time again with longer-term meditators, move more into the direction of um, I, my task here is to elevate the whole yeah. because that's elevating me, which is the whole. Well, it is a funny thing, isn't it? Because I noticed with myself and a lot of other people have obviously said this and, you know, you just briefly spoke about it, that with meditation, it calms the mind in such a way that your everyday changes, your reactions are so different to how they may previously have been. You kind of stop and think before you react. There's that there's that time where if someone says something and it, you get upset, but then you're like, no, actually in your mind, you can see it a different way. There's that reaction it might be to your kids, to whoever. It really helps with that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, most of us are operating with that iOS, that operating system, which is deeply coded. And a lot of us, all of us actually arrive into this world with some form of coding that came through from our parents. Yeah. So we're, we're just arrived into the world and we've got a software program that we're operating with. And then that gets even more coded as we go through life, particularly in our first seven years. And then we start running with this automatic pilot that when we get into certain situations, there's an instantaneous reaction 
because it's a default sort of function in our mindset. But what meditation does, and you know, I see this all the time with myself, it's like, it's like you said, there's like a little window where consciousness itself, rather than the mind, but consciousness itself that's watching the situation and watching you in the situation says, how do you want to handle this? How do you want to react? What do you want to do here? And, you know, I'm using it more and more in my day-to-day decision-making, um, you know, which direction do I want to go in this moment? And you, um, you know, you, you start having a greater capability to be very consciously aware with your actions, with your words, with um, the way you're living your life and the way you're engaging with people. And it really is quite empowering when we start to get that. When did you decide, okay, I'm going to stop working in finance and then go and do all of the stuff that you do now? Because that would have obviously been quite a big leap and you're obviously earning good money. Yeah, it was really hard to walk away from, to be honest with you. It took me quite a long time once I knew that that's what I wanted to do and and then to the point where I actually ended up doing it because I was walking away from a a very substantial and very stable income that, you know, after 26 years, I'd become, you know, a very well-established broker in my company and very well-respected. And I could continue to work there for years on end till basically retirement if I wanted to, um, as long as the company sustained itself, which it still does to this day. And it was a very dynamic and successful company and I got a lot of respect for it. But when I knew inherently that there was a greater purpose for me in Mm. the world and I just couldn't sit there on the phone anymore talking to traders about the 10-year bond or the three-year bond and a a quarter point basis movement and a $10 million trade, it just, not to discredit those people that were working in those careers because there's a lot of merit in it and um, there was a lot of benefits in that, but it just became such a deep sense of knowingness that I had something else that I had to do. And then I had to go about finding a way to try and set up a commercially viable proposition for me to be able to do that because, you know, leaving finance to start teaching meditation is going to be a tough thing when you've got a family to feed in eastern suburbs of Sydney. Of course. How have you then gone on having your place in this world to be able to create a better world for a lot of other people? I think the main thing and my perspective on on this is that there are some amazing people doing amazing things in the world trying to solve the problems and change the world for the better. Um, For me, the angle that I want to come from and the way I feel I can contribute the most is by shifting people's states of mind. Yeah. I find it really hard to solve people's problems when they're stuck in a conditioned, programmed, coded state of thinking. And unless I can get them out of that coded state of thinking and accessing a field of intelligence and wisdom that's not in the iOS software, but in the field of creative intelligence, then it's going to be really hard for me to get them to be much more creative, much more adaptable. And this is on mass. This is what inspired me with the film and the book was to really convey the message that if we want to solve the world's problems, which are created by a limited framework of thinking and a very deeply coded framework of thinking, then we have to break free of the coding. We have to change the way we think and feel. And that really, for me, one of the most impressive tools that helps us do that was meditation. Now, I know there's a lot of other tools like plant-based medicines Mm. that are doing phenomenal things. And so so I'm very supportive and encouraging of of those other modalities, whatever the modality is, whether it's Qigong or chakra clearing or Reiki, whatever it is. For me, the one I'm trained in and passionate about is meditation. So that's what I want to use. And how, obviously, kids are our future and 
knowing all that we do now about meditation, these other things, how can we empower our children to live the left, the best lives possible? By us as adults living the best life possible. I think, you know, children grow through osmosis and I've got two beautiful 17-year-olds and, you know, they know their dad's a meditation teacher and they have access to meditation, they've learned to meditate, but they don't necessarily use it. Uh, what they need to do is start observing adults functioning mm. as conscious adults. And that is really the best thing that we as adults can do. There's a lot of people keep asking me, what are you doing for the children? Let's teach the children. This is like, hell, we've got a planet of adults that are behaving like babies and yeah. we really need to start changing the adults in the world. And the children by default will just observe that and start to normalise to that new way of living. But when they're seeing adults completely you know, flooded with pharmaceuticals and going to war and fighting over religions and killing people because their lover doesn't love them is, you know, we've got a lot of work to do with the adults still and we're not quite there yet. Yeah, I think that's one thing that is, you know, I know there's a few people that I've interviewed that have said this, you know, kids work in their subconscious mind till they're seven. So they're watching their community, they're watching mm. their family. And it's not, it's the words that you say, but it's also the actions. They're literally yeah. watching everything you do. So by changing those habits, you can bring up better kids. You know, if I'm driving along in my car with two children in the back seat and someone pulls in front of me and I'm in a really stressed, angry, anxious state and my nervous system's completely overwhelmed and I scream and shout at that person and stick my finger up at them, mm. then that's normal for my kids. They think that that's just normal. That's just a pattern of behavior. And then they see that and they grow into that and they start to embrace and embody that. So it's really, um, yeah, just living and breathing a life that's gentle and kind and caring and compassionate. And, you know, my, my kids are my greatest teachers. You know, the other day I walked in from the beach and it was a beautiful sunny day and I came back early and the kids were getting ready for school and I said oh kids it's the, it's like the most perfect day out there and my son stopped me he says no it's not he said there's a drought dad if it was perfect it'd be raining so this is not a perfect day and you know the one thing I'm noticing about these children is that they have a really different way of being in the world already. They're teaching us a lot of things because mm. you look at the Greta Thunbergs of the world and you know I know she's a very publicized teenager but She's no normal, no different than a lot of teenagers that I can see that are very passionate about the world being a better place because they relate to the world as a collective. And I think this is a really fascinating thing with children in our world today. They think so much more about the collective mm. and the the influence that they have on the whole. It's why the vegan movement's being pushed by the youth of the world today more so than the adults, which is phenomenal. And they're doing it because of compassion and caring for the planet as a whole. So they're quite remarkable beings already. They're doing a lot to teach adults a lot of things, I think. Do you suggest meditation for young children? And what age would you start doing it? I mean, as young as sort of six and seven is probably the earliest you'd generally go. I mean, I've, uh, we've got a little kid's book out that teaches them how to meditate in that book called Missy Moo Meditates. But, you know, the thing with children and meditation is that meditation is about closing the eyes and the senses and withdrawing from, from the world and finding the inner world, the inner silence. And for me, I'm just like let them explore the world. You know, the, 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 very few children are very enthusiastic about not exploring that world and going within. By the time we get to 30, 40, 50 and we're kind of done with that world, it's like yeah. I try to find joy and money and sex and, you know, buying a house and paying off the mortgage and getting a uni degree and getting a job and, you know, I still couldn't find what I was looking for mm. in that world. That's when we start going, oh, it must be somewhere else. And in the book, we've got a beautiful story. It's a, a Vedic mythology about... Um, 
Rama or God uh, being a bit, little bit concerned about the way the humans were behaving, so taking the divinity off them and hiding it somewhere that they wouldn't look. And Rama decided that um, after conveying the, the council, and they said, why don't you hide it up on the top of the highest mountain? And Rama said, oh, no, they'll look there for sure. Why don't you hide it at the depths of the sea? Oh, no, they'll look there for sure. And then uh, why don't you hide it in the deepest forests un- underground? Oh, no, they'll dig under there and go looking there. And then someone said, why don't you, I know, why don't you hide it inside them? Because they'll never look there. <laughs> and so I think that's something that after we've exhausted searching the outer world, do we finally start going, there must be something somewhere else, maybe it's in the inner world? Yeah, well, that's that actually brings me on to my next point. I think one thing with meditation that I really noticed and following a lot of work of so many spiritual leaders and thought leaders and so forth, the power that we have is within us. So it's not external, it's internal. And being able to meditate, I mean, it's great meditating in groups and, you know, you get all the energy from the other people, but having a practice as simple as meditation, you're able to do it at home or wherever you are. You don't need any fancy equipment or anything like that. And it really enables you to know that you hold the power to your life. You are able to change change your way of being just by surrendering to, to this divinity. How do you feel that that's changed your life? Because it, it's, it's helped me tap into something, this source that's within us that becomes the foundation for action. Mm. And in Sanskrit, there's a phrase, yogastha kuru kamani, which means established in being, perform action. And what it started to, before my actions were based on seeking pleasure, trying to find fulfillment. So that's outcome-oriented fulfillment where we go and have an experience, we acquire something, we we do something and that triggers a response and that's duality and that's where we get pleasure from something outside of ourselves. And that's why I was taking lots of drugs and all my addictions. But when you start meditating, what happens is you, you access within you source and source is divinely blissful and joyful and light and calm. And so you find an innate source of pleasure, innate source of fulfillment. And what that does is that it changes your actions rather than to seek fulfillment, but to express fulfillment. So what can I do to, uh, to convey my fulfillment to the world? And that really is a complete turnaround. It's a complete 180 shift on what is the natural tendency for what we're programmed, which is to go into action to get pleasure. When we find through source within us in meditation, it's already there, then it's quite defining how different our actions become. That doesn't mean you're completely enlightened straight away. And, you know, I still do things for pleasure, of course. And some of those things are, are you know, going to a rock concert or, you know, going to Burning Man or even going to yoga, you know, but um, we still do derive pleasure from the external world, of course, but it, it, it does make a big shift. And for me, that was a really big turning point where I started to find that my, there was less of that hunger and that ache to have to have an experience to get some level of elevation. And The Portal was a film that obviously was something that you manifested to be what it is today, which is a feature film. How did that come about? Well, you know, it was kind of hot off on the trails of The Secret. And I remember seeing The Secret and I, I was really impacted by The Secret. It was one of the very first documentaries in that transformational space. And they really just completely took the world by storm where they took a very esoteric subject, the 
you know, law of attraction and made it a very mainstream household thing. And I really got inspired to want to do that with meditation. Meditation was still very uh, unheard of and not very well tapped into in the world. And so that was the very starting point seven years ago to make a film that showcased the power of meditation and to inspire people through personal stories that meditation can help completely revolutionize and evolutionize someone's life. And so we wanted to film individual stories that had gone through crisis and use meditation to transcend and get out of that crisis. And Mm -hmm. so we wanted to show that, like you touched on before, it doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter what your background, doesn't matter what your story, we all have the ability for transformation because inherently within us is source and is that innate divinity. So that was what the sort of basis for the film was all about. In life today, it's obviously very busy. You know, we've got iPhones. We have a million things that we can get distracted by and it's a big deal. You know, I don't feel like there's been any other time in my life where there's so much going on that there are these distractions from taking you out of the present moment. How do you suggest to people to allow themselves to be in that everyday present moment to be still without having their eyes closed? Yeah, you know, I'm learning this along the way. You know, only just last night I had a day of just nonstop meetings and in between meetings just getting through emails and in between getting through emails, getting through messages on WhatsApp and Voxer and Facebook Messenger and Instagram and text message. And last night I was lying in bed and I'm down in Melbourne after flying in from Sydney and I was lying in bed and I could feel my nervous system, you know, and I've got a pretty good practice and, you know, I, I sort of on top of things as much as I'd like to be sometimes, sometimes could be better. But I'm thinking, how's everyone else going out there? Like I'm feeling, you know, with that jitteriness, mm. you feel in bed when you've been on a computer for too long or you've been on your phone for too long. And, um, you know, I really made a commitment to myself. It's like, wow, okay, I need to spend even less time. And I like to sort of compartmentalize time on my phone. And so uh, I definitely will put my my phone on airplane mode at times or just put my phone on silent or just really put my phone away from me at home or other places at times and compartmentalize time where I'm on my phone. But I think we have to be really, really careful about the addictive nature of what's happening with our phones and social media because, um, you know, like I said, I've got a pretty good practice and it's really starting to have quite a big effect on me as well. So uh, I think we need to, as a society, be really careful where we're going with yeah, this. Yeah, it is a funny thing because I also think like I've got such a really amazing practice, but I am very conscious of the fact that I'm on my phone too much and I have to be on it a lot for work. Yeah. But it's that time where you know what, you're not at work anymore and it's about putting it away and really being in that present moment because that's, that's where, you know, the happiness lies. It doesn't lie anywhere else. It only lies in the present. If we're always looking into the future, then we're never living that happy life. So it's really interesting being through what you've been through now and having that terrible crisis that you went through, what would you say to someone who is experiencing a crisis, you know, similar to yours, different, but a crisis of some sort and they're listening to this? Yeah, you know, it's there's different stages that we can go through. If you think of a car crash, you know, we don't want a therapist to turn up and start coaching us. Um, you, need a, you need a paramedic. And there's immediate things that we need to do when we're in a really severe situation. Um, look, meditation will help, but we also need to, you know, bring in everything at that particular point in time. And really the bigger and more extreme the situation, the more we need to start really looking at how do we change our life. So for me, 
you know, exercise is going to play a critical part, just getting your blood moving and getting endorphins changing, moving through your body. Um, meditating is going to play a critical part. Stretching and opening our body up, so that stretching or yoga is going to play a critical part. Um, you know, using a very um, effective use of supplements. So, you know, making, I'd say a naturopath, but, you know, looking at your supplements and your herbs that you're taking going to really help stabilize your system. You need to look at a very holistic approach to stabilize the system and stop it getting into that overwhelm so that you can start to just calm everything down and start to see more clearly through that path because there is a creative solution. There is a way forward. There is always a way forward no matter what. And we need to just bring some stability into our emotional state, into our physical state, into our mental state at that particular point in time using whatever devices and holistic approaches we can. And then from that place, we'll start to get a little bit more uh, clarity around the way forward and, and a sense of, okay, I'm getting a bit of clearness about what I need to do here. What do you think is our biggest obstacle to peace? Distraction. Distraction, just being caught up in the outside world, being caught up in the gross level of charm and pleasure, being caught up in things that are outside of us rather than inside of us. What are you most grateful for? I'm grateful for my teachers. I'm grateful for my family. I'm grateful for, I, I do great gratitude every day. I do 10 things that I'm grateful for. And sometimes it will be the sun. You know, the other morning I watched the sunrise and I do sun gazing, which is looking into the sun. And I almost had tears in my eyes of such gratitude for the sun and its presence and its light and its warmth that it provided me. So yeah, I gratitude for fresh running water. There's so many things every day that I feel gratitude for. What is the lesson that took you the longest to learn? Just, I've got so many lessons that I still struggle with today um, that I'm still trying to to overcome and learn. Um, I think to love myself, uh, and that sounds really cliched, but to I'm kind of my worst critic and still am, and uh, and there's a lot of uh, self flagellation that happens. So still learning that one. Um, that's an egoic tendency, not a divine tendency, obviously. So letting go of the attachment to the ego, which has that quality or characteristic embedded in it. What is a life of greatness to you? I think a lot of life of greatness is about realising our truth, our immense capacity to be and express unconditional love, to be light, to be bliss, to be joyful, and then to share that through whatever medium we feel compelled to share that through with the world and uplift not just humanity but the planet itself. Tom Cronin, thank you for all your beautiful words. <laughs> it's great to be here. Stay connected by following A Life of Greatness on Instagram at A Life of Greatness Podcast. For more information and to watch videos on this and other episodes, head to sarahgrimberg.com. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe, rate and review A Life of Greatness on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app. A Life of Greatness is a Podcast One Australia production. Executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers, Matt Nikolic and Darcy Thompson. Special thanks to Grant Tottiel for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, head to podcastoneaustralia.com.au.